Uh, let's let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together on uh, this Lord's Day, and we're thankful that you have fed us with your word and, and your sacrament, and we're grateful. And we ask that now, as we gather together, that you will give us insight into your word and understanding of who you are in accord with your revelation of yourself. And uh, Father, I pray that you'll lift our hearts up to you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, today is our last day, I think. Um, and I looked back over my proposed syllabus for the course, and we got to week two of my proposed syllabus. Um, and that's okay. Um, I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I was involved in a, um, in, in a conversation at, at Sanford due to Matt Schneider with a visiting artist, or art critic actually, a fellow named Dan Seidel. I don't know if some of you are familiar with Dan's work or not. So we had a sort of public conversation about art and, and the Bible and God. And, and, uh, and it was fascinating, but to sort of get prepared for that, I had to do a lot of reading. I mean, this was not my world I'm sort of thinking in. Uh, so I found myself reading a, a biography by Danchev on the French... Uh, post-impressionist Paul Cezanne, who I completely was, became taken with, um, and you know Cezanne's work um, was really the the kind of the propeller for a lot of deep philosophical reflection in the early 20th century, namely um, someone like Martin Heidegger. That would be a name. I mean, Heidegger went and discovered Cezanne's work and kept going back. He was just drawn to it. And another a French philosopher named Merleau-Ponty, uh, who wrote a fascinating um, article, a reflection on Cezanne, and he entitled Cezanne's Doubt. Um, Cezanne was riddled with insecurity in his work. Um, his insecurity didn't paralyze him from working. He was prolific. Um, Cezanne died as a painter because he was out and got, uh, as an 80-plus-year-old man, painting, as they would say, sur la motif, you know, actually out in the, in the, in the context itself, got caught in a rainstorm, fell, uh, went at, um, um, was unconscious for like three hours in the rain as an 80-plus-year-old man. Some neighbor found him, got him back to his house. He kind of recovered, went back out and painted the next day, and then the next day he died. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Um, and and uh, and he was never never satisfied with his work. Um, and uh, uh, Merleau Ponty, reflecting on that, said there's something to be said about painting and the world, and that is if we lived millions of years in our own individual lives, not to take away from the count that time itself kind of continues to march on, but just ourselves, and we know we won't live that long, but if we lived for millions of years, um, we, would, we would never finish the product or the, or the activity of doing work that tries to correspond with the complexities and the beauties of our world around us and acts of representation and interpretation. Uh, I read that, and my heart kind of got fuzzy when I read that, because that, that's frankly the same thing to be said about the study of the Bible and theology. And if we, if we live a million years, um, you know, we, 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 we're not done talking about it and reframing it and using new metaphors or new modes of entry intellectually and spiritually to understand um, God's Word and to understand God. Um, this is why, you know, Karl Barth, when he was kicked out of the University of Bonn in Germany because he wouldn't take the oath of allegiance to Hitler, this was in the 30s, uh, 1930s, 
Um, they kicked, they kicked um, him out of, of his university post and ended up going down to Switzerland for the rest of his career. And on his way out, his final farewell lecture, his students, in effect, asked, what would you like us to know? And he said, well, this is what I want you to take away from me. Exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. In other words, what he said was, I want you to give yourself for the, to the study of the Bible, recognizing that that's a task that's never done. You know, so like painting or writing or reflecting or living a life, these are projects that are never sealed off. They're living dynamic organisms that you continue to give yourself to. And it's the same with what we've done <laughs> over the past eight weeks. And we just got out of the gate, but we could just go on doing this for a really long time. And that, that's okay. Um, now, with that said, I do want to give you my sense of where we've come from to where we are. Uh, some of the bigger issues that we've covered, and then uh, talk about a few other matters, and then we'll maybe, if, if you know God prevails, we'll have a little time for Q and A. Um, but where I think we've come from, we spent more time in this class together speaking about interpretation than I anticipated. Um, the technical term for that is is a hermeneutics. Now, my father used to give me a hard time about that word. Um, and he'd call me on the phone. He says, you're not teaching one of those hermeneutics courses this semester, are you, or something like that. Um, but uh, hermeneutics, or, or what we could just w- would call, maybe on a little more pedestrian level, interpreting and reading the Bible. What does it mean to be a good reader? What kind of readers does the Bible anticipate? How do we understand the significance of human authors in relationship to a divine author? And how do we understand that the Bible is intentional, that it's doing something, that it's not just a wax nose, it's not just a mirror of various ideological proclivities or instincts? In other words, and and I think this is frankly where a lot of Bible reading is now in the academy. The Bible now has been taken somewhat, and I'm using pejorative language, but intentionally so, has been taken hostage by various ideologies to become a mirror for our own particular either political or ideological concern. I'm concerned about this issue. I read the Bible that way. I'm concerned about this issue. I'm reading that. Or my personal identity is thus, and that becomes the sole kind of totalizing vision for the way in which I engage the Bible. So how do we avoid... That particular, and I think that that's a, a dead end alley, um, because then the Bible becomes a wax nose that is configured to whatever we want it to be. How do we affirm that the Bible's different than us? It's not us. It's an object. It's distinct from a subject. But at the same time, any time that I, as a subject, begin to read it or think about it or talk about it, I'm immediately involved in the process, and as I can't escape. My situatedness as a human being, my, to, to, I mentioned that Merleau-Ponty, that French phenomenologist. What Ponty would say is, uh, you can't escape your bodies. We, we live in an embodied existence and we can't escape that. So to pretend that that doesn't influence the ways in which we view the world, I'm, I'm, I'm having conversations about this with the kid you were talking to on the way down uh, today, especially my, my oldest uh, son, who I hope he doesn't, doesn't hear this. Um, but you know we're we're talking something, and he he gets this honestly from his father, so you have to go, have to be careful about this. Um, you know, but but about the proportionality that God has given us in relationship to our ears and our mouth. You know, it's like there's a, there's a significant issue here from from a creative standpoint that God gave us two ears and one mouth, 
and maybe we want to think about our proportionality and our existence, you know, related to that. Listen more than we speak, right? Um, and the other thing, too, is, um, you know, my, uh, I shouldn't have mentioned him, but he's our, I've outed him. But he also um, is uh, uh, omniscient. It's an incredible gift that 12-year-olds have. Um, and, uh, and the sense of the omniscience is never, ne- never is there any lack of doubt when statements or observations are affirmed and communicated. In other words, uh, this is just how it is. And then I'll, we'll say, well, William, here, here's some evidence to, to the contrary. Uh, oh, well, maybe the evidence itself is problematic or something like that. Um, and, and, and it's funny, we were having a conversation last week at my, my mother's house. We were in the front yard throwing the football. And I said, you know, William, it's a funny thing. We can't, we can't see ourselves. We're talking about this with another child. So we just don't have the ability to see ourselves. Isn't that, have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a crazy thing. I, I can't, see, when I look in the mirror, I see myself, but we live our whole existence kind of looking at the observable world around us, but we don't get to see ourselves enacted in that world. That's why, you know, whenever you hear yourself on, you know, you take the family recording at Christmas, and then you play it back and you're like, who's that guy talking? <laughs> that sound like me. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, when I was in high school, I did a lot of singing in, in sort of public settings and thought I was pretty good. And then I remember one time hearing a recording of it and going, oh, dear God, you know, it's like, oh, who's that guy singing? Um, we just don't get to see ourselves. We, we're embodied. And that necessarily hinders us from understanding the world and its totality. We're necessarily limited. Um, and that's okay, but I think not coming to terms with that runs into significant dangers. You know, I'm a, I'm a white, middle-class guy. <laughs> you know, that, that shapes things. I have female, I had a massive conversation with some students after class on, on a Friday. I have some female students in the class, and they began to sort of talk about their experience in the classroom. And, and, and just to be very frank with you, Beeson is a kind of male-dominated culture. But, but it's, it's, and what's your experience in this? It was almost like Chinese for me. You know, I had to kind of listen and go, that's, that's not my instinct, but I would be foolish not to hear these gals talk about their experience and what their experience from their embodied realities. You know, so all of that to say, that was a very circuitous way of getting to the point that we can't escape our subjectivity as readers. We just can't. We're located there. But at the same time, we don't want to reduce the Bible to our subjectivity. And this is where Trinitarian language comes into the interpretive conversation. Well, then how do we get out of that impasse? I mean, what do we do there? Well, from one standpoint, we don't get out of that impasse. But from another standpoint, that opens us up to deep hope and assurance that God, by the presence of His Spirit, will communicate His Son to us through His Word, and He will do so in His own way, in His own timing, and by His own efforts. And that puts us, I think, in a position of deep anticipation and hope, and it's also why the the, the whole task of reading the Bible and coming to terms with the Bible is never done. I I don't know if that's settled on you, but it continues to weigh on me. Here we are 2,000 plus years into this Christian thing with a pretty limited canon when it comes to our authoritative scriptures i mean these things should have been mastered at some point don't you think i mean we're talking about what 27 books in the old testament and 20 66 something total books i mean we've been reading these things for a long time and yet here we are still doing it and wrestling with it and disagreeing over it 
and trying to submit ourselves to it. So we spent a lot of time in this course here, particularly in not whatever the class or lesson, uh, talking about um, the the, uh, the reading of the Bible. And one of the important points that I wanted to make in here, and again, I'm just going to sort of levy it out there, is um, making a distinction between what the biblical authors knew and who God actually is. I mean, this is a pretty big deal when it comes to the Old Testament because I'm not sure, now I would have, maybe we could talk longer about this, but I'm not convinced, you know, Moses was in his own intellectual orbit a Trinitarian. Because I'm not sure Moses is going to talk himself in Nicene terms, nor Isaiah, nor David, even though they're giving us language itself that already lends toward this particular Trinitarian dynamic. So it's not, I don't think Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah would go, where'd you get that? I think that they would say, oh, that, that's helping me make sense of a rather complex phenomenon as it is related to God. Um, but I don't want to collapse the being of God with what authors knew in a particular moment. Um, that that that's pretty important, and that that by the way is is a that's a um, a pretty big deal within Bible study today in the guild in the academic world, and because that would be called an anachronistic reading, and that's a big no no in our historically shaped world, to read the Bible anachronistically. What's an anachronistic reading? It's going to the art gallery and seeing the scene of the tomb with the, with the stone rolled away and the soldiers look like Ponce de Leon or some sort of Spanish conquistador. And like, uh, don't think Roman soldiers dressed quite like that. You go, that's an act of artistic anachronism. Um, you know, we're very historically minded these days. And I think there are a lot of, of, of Bible scholars who would say, for you to take a later Christian doctrine and allow that to be a lens by which you read the Old Testament world, it's an act of historical anachronism. And that's why I would want to affirm in some level that it's actually not anachronistic. It can't be because God doesn't understand anachronisms. There's a God's not bound by this sort, sort of historical continuum of past, present, and future so that God in the Old Testament is waiting, and this is not a right term, but is waiting to trinitize himself, right? But I just can't wait for Matthew 1-1 so that I can become a trinity. Um, I mean, God, God's not, God's being is the, the terms anachronism don't even work there because those are temporal frames of reference that don't necessarily work when predicated on the character of God. So we talked a lot about that, actually, a lot about sort of Bible reading, about these particular categories of what we expect when reading the Bible and how Christian doctrine aids in our reading of it, making some sense of it. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the significance of the revelation of the divine name. What does it mean that God has identified himself as Adonai, as Yahweh, if we can uh, vocalize that? And I still get a little nervous doing that, but you know, we, we don't want to necessarily vocalize that term. But Jehovah. What does it mean that God is Jehovah? Well, he reveals his name in the context of his redeeming of his people. Now, the revelation of the divine name in the Old Testament is linked to these specific and important moments of God's self-unveiling, not because they didn't know the name itself, but they did not know the significance of the redemptive character of that name. And God's name is linked 
to His redemption of His people. We talked last week about how important that particular notion is for coming to terms um, with the Bible. Okay, Today, I want to sort of wrap it up by talking about the ways in which the Old Testament itself anticipates and shapes for us an understanding that God is a unified essence, that God's godness is one. But at the same time, there's a, there is a division or a plurality of personhood within that self-same uh, uh, divine unity and sharing of the divine essence. So I'm going to try not to use jargony language. All right, I'm going to try to kind of keep this you know, at 15,000 feet. Um, but I wanted to look specifically at the text in Genesis chapter 32. And if you have phones or Bibles, let's look at this text. And then I will just talk about a few others. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and I've, pre- I've preached on this text around here before. So, you know, I, I, this is old hat for um, some of you. And I'll be careful not to kind of go too far into that. So Genesis 32, uh, Martin Luther in his commentary on Genesis said that he thinks that this, this particular story here might be the strangest story in all of the Bible. Uh, Jacob's res- Jacob wrestles with somebody and it happens to be God. And he puts God in a full Nelson. It's a strange story. Uh, so he, the same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, you know, just as an aside here from a textual perspective, there's a lot going on here about the name Jacob. Now, so for example, Jacob's name is in Hebrew is Yaakob. The river here is Yaabok. Hear that? And the Hebrew term for wrestling is yeabek. So you hear all that? That's fun. And I think the author means for it to be fun. In other words, if you're wondering what Genesis 32-22 is about, it's about Jacob. <laughs> okay? And why is it about Jacob? I mean, the place where he is at the Jabok River sounds like his name. The activity, the main verbal character of the story is Jacob's wrestling. And it all sounds like Jacob's name. So if you're wondering what this text is about, it's about Jacob's name and the changing of Jacob's name and how significant that is uh, to the storyline. Now, no longer is he Yaakov. Now he's going to be Yisrael. Right, so that's the, where the story's going. But there's all kinds of mystery shrouded in this thing, right? Um, so he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. I think that means he went to the southern. He was on the southern side, and he sent his family to the northern side. Um, and you remember, everything in this story is moving toward a particular cataclysmic moment. What's that cataclysmic moment? Jacob knows that he needs to see Esau. And the last time they parted, it didn't look pretty. And in fact, it was so bad that Jacob knew that tomorrow, when he sees Esau, his brother, this could be my last day. I mean, my existence may be coming to an end. And he's doing what Jacob does. You know, Jacob's name means heel grabber. He's, he's the wily one. He's the manipulator. And he's doing it right now. I mean, he can't escape it. It's part of the character of his name. It's all around the character of the name. Why? Well, he sends his his wives and sends all of his people ahead. And he sends all these gifts ahead of money and 
animals and, and I guess fine linens. He sends all this ahead to try to pave the way to work this situation toward his advantage. He's doing what Jacob does. He's living in accord with his character. In verse 24 we read, And Jacob was left alone, and a man... Now that's important. I'll write this up here. There's something about chalk that just seems right. Uh, So that's the Hebrew word for ish. He sees a man. An ish. Well, that's interesting. And he wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, I won't get into the vampire elements of this story, but there's something going on, right? Here he is at night, and then when the man, that Ish, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, this this chapter, by the way, has caused the Jewish interpretive stream massive headaches. I mean, massive headaches. In fact, in, in Rashi, I believe, or maybe it's Maimonides, one of the major medieval interpreters in theologians, Jewish theologians, said this man that Jacob's wrestling with has to be the demonic de- demon or angel of Esau. <laughs> and that's, that's, there's major parts of the tradition that read it this way. Why? Well, because Jacob's in a wrestling match with God and he's winning. That's, that's not right. So verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And that, by the way, is the moment in the narrative when Jacob all of a sudden realizes, uh, I don't think this is just an ish. I don't think this is just a man. He just touched my, my hip and I can't walk normally anymore. So now Jacob, again, he's just acting in accord with who he is. Jacob does what Jacob does. I'm wrestling with someone special here. I'm not going to let him go until he blesses me. Does that sound familiar? Right, that goes all the way back to the, big, the early Esau narrative. I'm not going to give you this soup until you bless me and give me your blessing. And now here he's doing it with God. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God obliges. And he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael. For you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me, your name, and this we talked about last week, but he said to him, why is it that you ask my name? And then he moved on, and he blessed him. Remember, we talked about this last week. That's significant here. He didn't tell him. That's that's not for you to know now. Not that Jacob, again, didn't know the name, but this is all caught up within the Exodus narrative. There's something particular about the Exodus narrative that with God revealing his name that needs to be waited for. All right, now, you got all that before you? This is the Trinitarian part I wanted you to see. Now to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I would say it's in it's page 1448 in my Bible, but I don't think that'll help you all. Um, Hosea, so we go, um, let's see here, your Bible. Uh, at Dan, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. So if you're in Genesis, take a right. <laughs> And if you got to Matthew, you went too far. It's after Ezekiel. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. 
So Ezekiel, then Daniel, you're real, you're, if I use my kids' language, you're warmer, warmer. Um, in Hosea chapter 12, and if you don't get this, nobody, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, Hosea 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind, verse 1, pursues the east wind all day long. Ephraim is a term of endearment for the northern kingdom, Israel. They multiply falsehood and violence. Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. I'd love to talk about this, but Hosea is a northern prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel, but his prophecies... I guess, are collected and collated and shaped in the southern kingdom in Judah. So here you have this prophetic activity of Hosea in the northern kingdom that gets refabricated and reworked to have a provenance that goes beyond his ministry there in the northern kingdom. He's not just talking to Israel. He's also talking to Judah here in the south. So here it goes. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, southern kingdom, and will punish Jacob, northern kingdom, Israel. All right. And how is he going to punish them? According to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Why? Because in the womb, and this is, again, well worth talking about, but Hosea chapter 12 is the Bible reading itself. And you see that all over the place. Matter of fact, I find it to be one of the more fascinating aspects of Bible study. How does the Bible listen to itself? How does the Bible interpret itself in its own intercanonical conversation? Well, here's an example right here. Hosea is reading Genesis. So in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with whom? God. And then the next verse, verse, that's right, verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. So did you see that there? So, I, I mean, here, here we go back, uh, back to my uh, board. The Genesis narrative tells us that it's an Ish, a man, that he wrestles with. But we know by the nature of the narrative that this is not any normal man. This is some sort of divine figure that Jacob is wrestling with because he gives him a blessing, he changes his name, and obviously given the even the mystery of the narrative, this Ish, this man, this embodied figure right, that Jacob is wrestling with under the Middle Eastern moon by the riverside um, is not merely an Ish, but he is an Ish. He's a man. And here you have... Okay. Here you have in Hosea, he tells you, by the way, verse 12, I mean verse 3, and in his manhood he strove with God. Next verse, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He, he wept and he sought his favor. <laughs> um, which is another kind of interpolation on this. right? In other words, Larger issue here for Hosea the prophet. What Jacob does by the river Jabbok is Jacob embodying what it means for Israel to be Israel at her finest. Want to know what, when Israel looks like Israel at her best? When she wrestles with God by the river, won't let go of God's blessings, weeps and turns to God in repentance. When Israel is repenting Israel, that is Israel at her finest. And this is the call of the prophet. Be Israel. Be like your progenitor. Be like your namesake, Yaakov. 
Go by the river and wrestle with God all through the night. Hold on to His blessings and turn to Him. That's the big sort of you know prophetic voila that, that Hosea is driving home here. But this theological bit here, certainly worth thinking about. So Hosea, tell me exactly, who is this figure that uh, Jacob is wrestling with by the river bank? Is it God? Or is it an angel? Or is it an ish, a man? And it's as if Hosea says, well, don't you know the answer to that is yes. And it's, 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 in other words, Hosea's not giving us a clarified conceptual account of all that's going on here. But he's certainly using language that's highly evocative, right? Well, why? Because here he describes without any interference that the person that Jacob wrestled with under the moon was God. And at the same time, the person that Jacob wrestled with was the angel of the Lord in embodied masculine features, something that could be touched and wrestled with. Um, so much to talk about here, right? Uh, two things though I'll talk about. Number one, um, we see here, for example, that there's already an indication within the Old Testament itself that God can speak of His angel, the angel of the Lord, as both distinct from Adonai or Yahweh and Yahweh at the same time. You see this in the call of Gideon. You see this um, with, uh, with uh, 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 this, the scene on Mount Moriah when Abraham was about to drop the knife on Isaac. Who's speaking there? The angel of the Lord shows up but it's the first person voice of Yahweh speaking. So you see the sort of overlap that's going on so that you can speak of Yahweh and His angel as, to use theological terms, as the same in substance, but different in person. You already have that kind of dynamic going on there, right? The second thing that I want to sort of point out is you also begin to see, have to think through the difficulty of coming to terms with the incarnation of our Lord. When does the second person of the Trinity become a man? He does so in a manger. And by the way, he stays a man, right? Well, what's going on by the river here at Jabbok? What's going on with that fourth figure in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What's going on in all these places in the Old Testament where God seems to be able to enflesh himself? Now, my understanding of this is because what, what are the dangers we're trying to avoid? Number one, we want to affirm the uniqueness of the incarnation of our Lord. That is unique, what happens with Mary and what happens with Jesus of Nazareth. That is special and unique to the divine life. But at the same time, I think we want to say, but what you see in Genesis 32, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a couple other places I might show you here in a second, what you see are lightning flashes in the divine history of Israel that are testifying to you about the character of our God and that He can embody Himself, enflesh Himself, take on human form, and in doing so, not diminish Himself at all, but anticipate something about the character of His being. In other words, when you get to Advent and Christmas, the old, it's as if the Old Testament is saying, I told you this would happen. Right? I told you this was going to happen. There were lightning flashes all over the place to let you know that it's not a strange thing for God to take on human flesh. And here He does it in the greatest eternal rescue mission that you could ever have imagined. 
God taking on human flesh, not in an episodic moment like you see in Genesis 32, but now as constitutive of his being for eternity in Jesus of Nazareth. And that, by the way, you see in other places. Um, I, I, I wanted to, I was going to, I'll just throw spaghetti against the wall and then we'll talk. Um, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. You, you hear this every Good Friday. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. It's such a rich text. The verses that come right before it say, Behold my servant who is high and lifted up. Those are two Hebrew words there. Rum v'nasah. They're the same Hebrew words in Isaiah's prophecy that Isaiah uses when he sees the Lord Yahweh on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6. What does he see? He sees him, rum v'nasah. High and lifted up. Matter of fact, that particular phraseology in the, in the book of Isaiah becomes crucial to God's judgment of His people. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 10. What's happening there? Israel or Judah, they're room venasaing themselves. They're raising and exalting themselves. That's Bible terms for pride and arrogance. And what does God do in Isaiah chapter 10 when Israel rooms and nassahs themselves, when they raise and exalt themselves? God comes in as the tree feller and He cuts them down. Why? Because no one is raised and exalted except for Adonai Himself. Well, when Paul, by the way, in, the, in, in Corinthians says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. When he's using that line, that's Isaiah thought right there. We have nothing to boast about. We will boast in Him. He alone is the one that's, that's high and lifted up. But now I come to Isaiah chapter 52 or 53, and what am I seeing? I'm seeing that this servant figure, who's the means by which God is going to redeem Israel and the nations, this servant figure is being predicated with terms that are unique to Yahweh Himself in Isaiah. No one is high and exalted except for Him. I mean, Isaiah chapter 45, it's as if the prophet is at pains to say, hey, you know all these idols, all these silly things? Only God is glorious. Only Him and Him alone. And now he's using that language, talking about His servant. So all of a sudden we see a servant figure that's distinct from Yahweh, but being predicated with language that's reserved specifically for Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, talks about the coming day of David. And a righteous ruler will come who will save the nations and, and, and his people. And what's his name? His name is Yahweh, Tetragrammaton, our righteousness. There are certain streams of the tradition that have, have nominalized that and said, the Lord who will be our righteousness. That's not what it says. This is this coming figure who's the Davidic hope that we're looking forward to. He will be called full tetragrammaton, our righteousness. That doesn't happen anywhere in the Bible. That, that makes a certain mode of reading of the Old Testament blush. You don't talk about some coming Davidic figure in terms of Yod, He, Vav, He, Yahweh, Jehovah. That's unique to him. And there's another text in Zechariah chapter 2 where, again, talking about the coming branch. Where Yahweh says, I'm going to come into your midst. And when I come into your midst, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring joy and satisfaction. That great day. And then here's the next verse. And when He sends me to you. Calvin's brilliant on this. And Calvin's not quick to pull out, you know, the Trinitarian, 
you know, ruler and slap it on something. He wants it to emerge from the text itself. Calvin says, what do you mean in this text that Yahweh Himself promises to come into the midst of His people? And then the next verse says, and when Yahweh sends first common singular pronominal suffix, when Yahweh sends me, a figure distinct from Yahweh, is the promised presence of Yahweh in their midst. Now I know this is a lot, right? But what are you sensing? You're sensing this sort of textured pattern in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to come to you, I will be with you, and His very presence is mediated by one distinct from Him, yet co-equal with Him. So when you come to John chapter 1, verse 18, and all of a sudden you begin to see this language in John's Gospel where in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Zechariah language. We beheld His glory. John 1, 18, no one knows the Father except for me, and I have revealed Him to you. So you have this story, co-eternality between the Father and the Son as distinct yet sharing in the same divine property. Um, the, the simple point is, all of that language out of John, John is not that novel of a theologian, is what I'm trying to say. Of course he is in his own way of construing it. But what is he drawing from? He's drawing from the playbook of the Old Testament itself. It's not just revising this up all on his own. He's thinking about the significance of Jesus in light of the playbook of the Old Testament. All right? So, I don't know. What time is it? Oh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> one question? One, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, I think what Jesus is saying here is he's making a claim about the fullness and the totality of knowledge. Again, I mean, this is the kind, and, and in Christian theology, a distinction is made between, and I'm sorry for the, the jargon, but archetypal and ectypal knowledge. Archetypal knowledge is the knowledge that God has of himself. That is pure knowledge. Our knowledge is ectypal. It's derivative. And I think it corresponds to archetypal, but, it's, but it corresponds in a way that's not total or comprehensive. It corresponds in ways that's analogous. So I think what Jesus is making a claim there is about his knowledge that he has is the same knowledge that God has of himself. That can't be said of anyone. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't reveal and speak clearly about himself. But God's self-knowledge is unique and in the providence of him alone. So when Jesus makes that claim, it's about as big a divine claim as you can make, actually. Because my knowledge of God is the same knowledge as God's knowledge of himself. Well, that means that you're God. Bingo. Yeah. You're dismissed. <laughs>